Hi there, and welcome to Even If, a weekly podcast about standing firm when life is shaking. I'm your host, Kelly Strife. Strife rhymes with wife. And together, we're finding the courage to approach uncertain and unwanted seasons of life through a posture of faith that stands firm and declares, even if he doesn't, he is still good. Guys, you are amazing, and I'm so grateful for the ways you've listened and shared and reviewed this podcast over the last week. Our deepest prayer since our daughter Imogen died is that the Lord would use her life in ways that we couldn't even imagine. And so to see people sharing and responding to her story is such a gift to us. Thank you so much. Several years ago, I went to an Atlanta Braves baseball game, and this was back when they still played at Turner Field. And if you've been to a game at Turner Field, you know that the walk to the car after the game was sometimes as much of an adventure as the game itself. And so on this particular occasion, we'd parked several blocks away. And as we got into the lot, I took off my green rain jacket that I was wearing and I pulled my phone out of my pocket so that I could get ready to get in the car. And about that time, I heard somebody running up behind me. And the next thing I knew, I felt somebody bump into me. And before I could make up my mind whether I was going to apologize or turn and say, excuse me, he actually slipped his arm underneath mine and he grabbed my phone out of my hand and took off running. And it all happened so fast that I couldn't even really figure out what to do. Should I scream for help? Should I yell? Should I try to convince my roommate to run after him? Because I wasn't running after him. But by the time I could even make up my mind, he was already long gone. And so instead, we just called the police and waited for them to show up. And we knew they probably couldn't actually do anything, but we wanted to get it documented for insurance purposes. So the police came and they took our statement and then they actually started driving around the neighborhood looking for the guy that matched our description. And before long, they pulled back into the parking lot and I can see they have somebody in the back seat. And they get out of the car and they tell me, hey, we've picked up this guy. We want you to identify him. And all I can think is like, this is not how it happens on TV. There's no privacy glass. I'm not behind a two-way mirror. There's no lineup here. But they had the guy get out of the car and they actually wanted me to identify whether or not it was him or not. And I guess fortunately it wasn't. So I didn't have to figure out what to do. Here's the thing. It was a phone. I could replace it. My information was backed up and I bought a new one and restored my contacts and life went on pretty quickly without much more than a hiccup. But even so, I felt violated. Somebody had taken something that belonged to me and they'd actually stolen it right out of my hand. It wasn't theirs. And they had robbed me in broad daylight with hundreds of people around and it bothered me for weeks. I couldn't shake this feeling. That was years ago. But last year, when Imogen died before she was even born, it took feelings of violation to a whole new level. I can't even describe to you how intrusive it felt. Because she died while I carried her. She died while she was inside of me. Death entered my body and passed through and took her without me even knowing until it had stopped her movements for longer than was normal for her. I had carried her for nine months, 41 weeks. We'd heard her heartbeat and we'd felt her kicks and we'd watched her sucking on her fingers on the ultrasound and we could see the outline of her feet and count her toes. 
I knew her rhythms and routines. I knew where she liked to hang out. And I knew she was a little gymnast who wouldn't stop flipping around. And by this time, we had passed all the milestones. We'd made it past the first trimester. We'd crossed the halfway mark. We'd gotten past the age of viability where we knew she could survive outside the womb. We'd passed through that early term distinction and we'd made it all the way to full term. We were actually one week past her due date when she was born. So we were really solidly in that healthy birth window. We weren't expecting anything to go wrong. We had decorated her room for her. We'd packed our hospital bag and we actually took it with us every time we left the house just in case. We had finished six weeks of birthing classes. We were as ready as we were going to be. The car seat was installed in the car and we had the pack in place set up beside our bed in her room. Her clothes were all washed in drift and they were hanging on tiny little hangers in her closet and they were folded neatly in her drawers. We had made space for her in every part of our lives, in our home, in our finances, in our schedules and on our calendars, in our jobs and in our hearts and in our minds. Every night we went to bed thinking, well, maybe tomorrow she'll come. And every morning we woke up wondering if today would be her birthday. And so when she died, I felt like death had invaded my space, my body, her home, and had taken what belonged to me, had taken my most precious possession, taken what I would have given my own life for without permission, without my consent, without cause. And all I was left with was this void, literally. There was a void in my body where she had lived. And there was a void in my arms where she belonged. And after all the space we'd created, all the ways we'd made room, now suddenly there was nothing to fill it. Stillbirth is interesting because it's an end right when you're expecting a beginning. It's an end of what was, an end to the pregnancy, but also an end to what you would have had expected would be. When we're pregnant, we use the word, we use the term expecting because there's a certainty to the outcome. And so we had whiplash from how quickly things had changed. And I felt robbed. I felt violated to the highest degree. And I told God as much. I told him those words. And immediately I heard him say, no one can steal what you willingly surrender. And listen, it was so gentle. There wasn't any demand or ultimatum in his voice. There wasn't judgment or accusation, only invitation. It was an invitation to offer him my pain, to trust him with her life and her story. An invitation to believe that Imogen belonged to him before she ever belonged to me and that she is safer in his arms than she is in my own. And that went against every motherly instinct I've ever had. I felt like I'd been punched in the stomach because I couldn't imagine how I could possibly surrender my child. And, and really, there wasn't even a choice because she was already gone. I didn't get the Abraham moment where I could prove my trust and then he could provide another way. And so my first response to him was, it's too much. It's too much. You can't ask me to let her go. God, you are asking for too much. 
he said, I know it is. I know it's too much. And I wouldn't ask if there were any other way. But as long as you view her as yours, she'll remain a theft. And when you surrender her to me, she becomes an offering. I am not saying that God asked me to sacrifice my child, to choose her death, or to stop wishing she was here with us on earth. He didn't ask me that. But he asked me to trust him. To trust that what death took, he received. What death robbed, he restored. That death had no claim on her and that her life, however short here on earth, was being used by God in ways far beyond what we could see. To trust that he genuinely loves her even more than I do. He didn't ask me to stop being sad. In fact, it was exactly the opposite. He asked me to offer my pain to him. And it was an act of worship that only I could bring. Most of us have a line, something that we feel like is just too much. For many of us, it is our kids and families or our desires for husbands or babies or wives. It's a dream that we feel like God has given us that surely he couldn't be asking us to let go of to offer back to him. Maybe it's letting go of the platform where we thought our calling would be expressed or accepting that it looks so much different than we'd imagined or planned. Maybe it's the comfortable life that we all feel entitled to on some level or degree. And if we're honest, we want to worship God through our grand acts and public displays. We want to worship him as an overflow of thanksgiving for what he's done in our lives. We want our worship to be born out of our gratitude not understanding that it often precedes the feelings we express. And this call to surrender has actually begun to sound cliche. And sometimes it feels like a test, like the Abraham moment where if we can just prove our willingness, then he won't make us after all. But surrender isn't this come out, come out with your hands up signal of defeat. It's not something God is asking us to prove. It's a come to me with your hands open faith. Trusting that he's not trying to take everything we value. He's trying to give back what's already been lost. And surrender isn't a one-time event. It's a daily climbing back up on the altar and letting go. And our surrender of desires, of control, of plans and expectation might just be the greatest act of worship we could ever offer. Every single gospel recounts the same story of a woman who approached Jesus with this incredible act of worship. While Jesus was eating with his friends, this woman comes up to him, and some of the stories tell us it was Mary. But this woman approached Jesus, and she opened up this expensive jar of oil. Two of the gospels tell us that she then poured it over Jesus' head, and the other two tell us she poured it on his feet. But either way, she anointed him with this costly, valuable perfume. And after she poured it over him, she touched him. Luke tells us that she started weeping and that she bent low enough to kiss his feet and to wipe them with her tears. It was this lavish, extravagant, humble act of worship. And it didn't worry about who was watching or what it cost because he was worth it. Jesus was worth it. And there are two things we need to know about her worship. First, it was an act of faith in Jesus as the Messiah and the Christ. 
and she anointed him not only as the king, but her king. And without knowing it, she actually prepared him for the burial he'd received just a few days later. And this act of worship declared, I believe you are who you say you are. You are worthy of my love. You are worthy of my devotion. You are worthy of my praise. And second, it was an act of love. It was a demonstration that nothing was too good or too expensive to bestow upon Jesus. She offered him her pride, not caring what others might think around her. She offered the most expensive possessions, not holding anything back for a more special or appropriate occasion. She offered her body bent low, her tears overcome with emotion, her affection, her kisses, her adoration for this man that she loved. Because when we're overcome with true love for Jesus, nothing will be too good or even good enough, really, to offer our king. So here I am, holding this invitation to offer my trust and my pain as an act of worship before God, and I thought, it's too much. Except that even this would never be enough. Because suddenly I had something of such value, of such worth to me, that I could make the purest offering I'd ever given. It was so much more than the songs that I could sing or words that I could express. This was an act of utter faith. Declaring to God, I trust you even here. You are who you say you are. Your promises are yes and amen in Christ. You are a good father. You are good. You are good. You are good. And I trust you. And it was the utmost expression of love because it asked me to pause for a moment from dwelling on what God had done to me and to think about what he had done for me, to remember that he had laid down his life for mine and to become overwhelmed once again with love for this man who had been so faithful all my life and to fall at his feet in worship and adoration and praise. My pain and my grief was expensive oil poured out on the only one who was worthy. It cost me something. It cost me everything. And so I had something of value to offer him. Your pain has value. Your disappointments have worth. Your grief is costly. And you too have something valuable to offer back to God in worship. He gives us the very thing we can offer back to him. But when the disciples saw this woman's offering, they got all bent out of shape and they started questioning her worship because they were sure that this oil could have been used in much better ways. And so they used the poor. This is what we do too. We remember the poor when it's convenient. They used the poor as an excuse. And they said, we could sell this and think of all the things we could do for the poor. But I don't think it actually had anything to do with the poor. I think it was their pride because they realized that the offering she made, they hadn't even thought to give. So Jesus puts them in their place and he rightly receives her worship and he validates it to the disciples. And he actually goes on to say that what she has done will be told in memory of her. And then it is recorded in every single one of the gospel accounts. Her worship outlasted her life. I don't have a lot of choices in this season. We don't always get choices in the even if seasons of life. But we do get to choose who we worship. 
And the crazy thing is that it's actually in our surrender that we regain some of our control. I wasn't a victim. I had a choice. My choice wasn't whether or not Imogen lived here on earth or in heaven, but I have choices that matter every single day. And I could choose to lavishly, extravagantly offer costly demonstrations of worship to my God over and over and over again. So here's what I do. Every time that I cry, I imagine myself covering Jesus' feet with my tears. Every time I hurt, I imagine myself pouring my pain onto Jesus' head and covering him with the fragrance, the aroma of my loss. Every time I want Imogen here, every time I acknowledge that my desires are so different than the way the story has unfolded, I picture myself placing those desires directly onto the altar and saying, Jesus, you can have it all. It doesn't make me want it any less but it acknowledges that I trust him more. And it doesn't matter who thinks it's too much. It doesn't matter who thinks my pain could be better spent or who says I could never do that because Jesus always receives my worship. He receives every single tear, every single hurt, every expectation, every word, every stutter that doesn't make it all the way out. Every song that I mouth along to, every word that I declare in faith, even though it's not felt, every step I take forward and every failed attempt I make as the most beautiful offering of worship. I don't know what God might be calling you to surrender. I don't know the pain that you feel as you consider letting it go. But I do know that when we acknowledge who he is, and let ourselves be overwhelmed once again with the magnitude of what he has done. This costly act of worship is our only response. And I like to believe that like this woman so many years before, my worship will outlast my lifetime. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of Even If. My prayer is that even if your knees are weak, today's episode offers you enough strength to keep standing firm. If this message resonates with you, or if you know someone who needs to borrow a little strength of their own, there are two ways that you can help spread the word. First, leaving a rating and review will help people find this podcast when they need it most. And it lets me know that people are listening and joining in. Reviews are super important in the podcast world, and I'd be so grateful if you'd take 30 seconds to rate and review. Second, spreading the word on social media helps get this message out farther than I ever could on my own. So please feel free to share this podcast and tag your friends that would love this as much as you. I always continue the conversation on Instagram. I'm at kelly.strife if you want to join us there. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure these episodes show up automatically in your feed each week. See you back here next week for the next episode of Even If.